Let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we're, we're, we're looking at heart matters, the things that are, are essential and, and core to following you and finding life abundant in you. And, and so, Spirit, we ask that you would move in us this morning. Would you be our light? Would you be our refuge? Would you bring in us transformation? Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking, uh, as we continue this series on Heart Matters, we're going to be looking at the topic of finding God's justice through forgiveness. So the two key concepts that we're going to be dealing with are justice and forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you imagine? What is it that you picture in your mind's eye when you hear that word justice? What does that look like? Justice. Do you see the bad guy getting punished? Do you see the righteous authority of God as judge holding his gavel, pronouncing sentence? Do you see the fullness of the consequences of judgment? The imprisonment, suffering, isolation. The person who has done wrong, who has caused hurt and grief, getting the recompense that they deserve. The criminal being put into the place of suffering, just like their victims. Is that what we imagine of justice? Let me, let me give you an example and, and just try and capture for yourself the picture of justice that, that comes to mind. When my oldest two, Isaiah and Sarah, were just babies, toddlers, uh, Isaiah had the ability to open doors and things like that, but Sarah, not quite. Isaiah didn't really have the motivation or desire to get into mischief, but Sarah did. And uh, she, one morning, as we woke up, my wife and I, there was silence. And when you have young children and there is silence, you know that there is trouble about. And as we came out, we lived in this old type of Queenslander house, had vinyl floors in the kitchen, carpet in the lounge room. To get to the lounge, you had to go across the dining room, around the table to get into the kitchen. And my beloved children had managed to get into the fridge and pull out the sour cream and the eggs and the beetroot, carry that across the vinyl floor of the kitchen onto our nice carpet and open up these delicious condiments, pouring the beetroot juice out across the carpet. And as the dad, I walk out into this scene. I imagine that's kind of what it was like when our Heavenly Father walked out into his garden, the Garden of Eden. And he cried, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve weren't to be found because of their sin. They'd realized their nakedness and they were ashamed. I picture that moment that I felt in that moment. The realization that, that Satan had intruded into God's family. And, and through temptation had taken away his children. Had robbed them of their innocence. As Glenn was sharing before and, and just in, in speaking when he said, you know, I don't know how I'd feel in that moment when my children were taken away got me thinking the justice of God you know what what would it have been like to see God confronting Lucifer in that moment would he have I imagine he would have said to said something like this to Lucifer Lucifer you need to know something about me I have a very particular set of skills a set of skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. You know, like, like Liam Neeson in that movie Taken. 
when his daughter has been stripped away by people who want to sell her off into slavery. A man who has a very particular set of skills. He doesn't have wealth. He doesn't have a whole lot of things to meet their ransom demands. But he has skills that will allow him to track them down and meter out a measure of vengeance upon them. And, and, and I imagine this confrontation with Lucifer. The righteous anger within God at what he had brought into his creation. Lucifer, I have a very particular set of skills. You know, that's exactly what he did. But the view of justice that God has and and the set of skills that, that God is talking about is very different to what we would imagine And what brings that sense of excitement of, you know, yes, the bad guy's finally getting their just desserts. Because the reality is that when it comes to the bad guys, that's us. That's you and me. So let me give you a slightly different picture of justice. A picture that is slightly more complete because the ultimate final judgment The sentence of hell and separation from God is indeed a part of God's justice. But if that's all we see of God's justice, we miss out on the fundamental principles of God's justice and and his deep desires in justice. So let me paint for you a a different picture and a perspective of, of justice. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 15 about a father and his two sons. Youngest of which gets restless with life and wants to go out and live and experience life in its fullness to see and and do all of the things that he sees being done in the world. And so he says to his dad, I want my inheritance. I don't want to wait until you die. I want it and I want it now. I want to go and live life and I want to experience life and and all that the world has to offer. And so he does, he goes and he experiences life and he fritters away his money and he finds himself in this place where he's feeding pigs and such is the depravity of where he had fallen to. He looks upon what the, the pigs are eating And he finds himself salivating, wishing that what he had to eat was as good as what they were eating. This is where we pick up this story. And this is where we see, I think, captured God's heart for justice in Luke chapter 15, verse 17. When this son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So when we think of justice, it's, it's got to be far greater than, than just this punitive sentencing of judgment. When I picture God's justice, I see a heart of repentance in this young son. And I see the embrace of a father. I love that it says that the father saw him still a long way off. What, what does that tell us about the father? 
He's not waiting there impatiently for his son to come home that he might meter out a judgment, that he might serve him with a lecture. He is waiting patiently to be gracious, patiently, earnestly, deeply desiring to embrace his son. That, for me, is the picture of justice. The prodigal father embracing his son. You see, justice for God is more than simply the final judgment. It's more than the ultimate punishment. It's not the end that God deeply desires. God's heart is for redemption. God's heart is for reconciliation. And God's heart is for restoration and renewal. In 1 John 4.10, John reminds us that in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Paul reminds us in Romans 5.8, but God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. When God declares, I have a very particular set of skills, skills that will bring you down, skills that will unravel your fiendish plan, Satan. They're skills that no one would expect because it was Jesus on the cross. When, when Satan thought that he was racking up a debt that, that no man or woman could ever pay for themselves, that, that Satan was entrapping us and locking us away to be forever damned and separated from God, God declares, I have a very particular set of skills. I have a way of justice and I have a love that you can never circumvent. I will make a way. There is something special about this. It's that there, is, that, that there is no one who deserves God's grace. Yet God desires that everyone might receive it. That we did nothing special to earn God's love, God's favor. But this is all part of God's justice. So when we talk about justice, we need to understand it more than just the simplistic way in, in which we see the world represent it Isaiah 30:18 declares that God waits patiently to be gracious to you because he is a God of justice in other words God's justice has this essential element of grace and mercy because for God justice is not primarily punitive it is not fun fundamentally about punishment, but redemption. This is the first key building block that we need to understand if we are to pursue the heart of the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is God's justice. That is not about metering out condemnation to the world because of their sin and brokenness. It is about desperately, earnestly seeking and desiring redemption and restoration that is the heart of the gospel we're going to be looking at how do we pursue and find God's justice through forgiveness and the destination of forgiveness isn't vengeance it isn't punishment it's redemption. So let's focus for a moment on, on that second element of our message this morning, forgiveness. Because it's only through forgiveness that we find God's justice and we let it flow. Let me put it another way. Justice, God's justice at the heart of justice is the gospel and the unforgiveness within our hearts is one of the biggest blockages to the gospel. You talk about the build-up of cholesterol in our heart that leads to our heart stopping. That is unforgiveness. When we let unforgiveness 
grow in our heart, when we harbor it, when we hold on to it, when we take comfort in, in the bitterness and the resentment and the anger that flows from that, we're, we're stopping the heart of God working in our lives. Only through loving forgiveness can God's justice and grace flow. So what is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive? What motivates forgiveness? A common perception of of forgiveness is that we forgive and forget, right? Forgiveness means that you ignore a past wrong and and you sweep it under the carpet. You push it deep down. We draw a line in the sand and we just try and forget about what's gone before so that we can move forward and start fresh. Like that, that's our common perception, that's our common application of forgiveness, right? We've just got to try and ignore it, forget about it, and try and move on. But I, I don't think it's that simple. Because when we try and suppress our hurt, when we compress it and hide it and bury it, it will always resurface. Kind of like a cold sore. If you've ever suffered from cold sore, I've been fortunate that I don't have cold sores, but my wife will get them from time to time and they will come and they'll flare up and they never goes away. It'll, there'll, be, there'll be weeks and months, sometimes years, when she won't have a cold sore, then out of the blue, it pops up. And, and when we hold on to the unforgiveness, when we push that deep down, when we try and hide it away, it will pop up because it's unresolved. Unforgiveness only ends up breeding bitterness, resentment and anger. Before we can fully unpack what forgiveness is, here's a clue. It's a heart matter. We need to explore the attitudes that drive it. What drives us to forgive? What motivates us to forgive? Because ultimately what motivates us determines what forgi- how we define forgiveness, what forgiveness looks like. So, so here are some motivations that I have observed over my years in myself and in others, motivations for forgiveness. Sometimes we forgive out of obligation because we have to. You know, when, when you're fighting with your brothers or sisters and, and one kicks the other one or one stops the other one from watching TV or playing the, the console or, or whatever it might be and the other one gets upset and so the parent comes in and says, right, you need to go and apologize. So they're, they're, they're saying sorry out of obligation, I'm sorry, to appease their parents. They don't really mean it. They don't really care that the other person is, is upset and they're hurting. And the flip side of that is that we have this obligation, we feel this obligation to say that's okay, when really it's not. Again, it's, it's to appease our parents. We, we do it out of this sense of obligation, but really, we're not okay. We, we don't feel like our hurt has been satisfied, that our hurt has been appeased. Another motivation to forgive is, is out of pride or vanity. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you know, someone might forgive another person because it makes them look good. It makes them look better than the other person and it might actually amplify the other person's misdeeds. It it becomes this kind of passive aggressive way of dealing with our hurt. We're we're, we're acting in a way that makes us look holy and good and righteous to be a, a, a generous person. But really we're manipulating other people. And we're manipulating a sense of of guilt and shame upon the person that's hurt us. That doesn't lead us to a place of God's justice. 
It's, it's a, a way that we lash out, that we bite back, that we're really, our motivation is not to bring about restoration and redemption. It's actually to hurt the other person. Another motivation, the third motivation, uh, is very similar to the second one. It's a motivation for power. To, to wield forgiveness, um, to, to manipulate perceptions, to gain a social or political advantage. We wield forgiveness as a weapon to gain something else that we want. So we're not really dealing with the hurt that we're feeling. We're not really dealing with our stuff, we're trading it for something else. All of these motivations fall short of finding God's justice. All of these motivations, motives are, are deficient in resolving conflict and dealing with hurt. And the resulting attitudes are, are a sense of bitterness, resentment and anger. That will ultimately tear apart relationships and cause deep rifts within relationships and communities. They polarize us, they separate us. All of these motives leave us in a place where our hearts are divergent from God's heart. Our ways become more and more separated from God's ways. And these motives, as a result, only lead us away from God and further into the destructive grips of sin. So how would God have us forgive? What is God's heart for forgiveness? Forgiveness is ultimately a process of heart transformation, of our heart transformation when we're hurting. It's a process where we deal with our hurt in a way that leads us back to God. Dealing with our hurt in such a way that, that God's justice can be pursued. Have you ever thought about this? Someone has hurt you deeply. Like, I mean really, really hurt you. Picture yourself in heaven one day. You're walking down the, the streets paved with gold. And you see their face. You see them walk around the corner. Do you feel a resentment? Like, what are you doing here? I think that's a really good indication that we haven't, we're not willing to allow God's justice to reign. And, and that's a problem because it's putting a rift between us and God. God says, I love them just as much as I love you. I died for them in the same way I died for you. And that's where forgiveness creates, a, unforgiveness creates a real problem for us. So forgiveness is really about heart transformation. It's about dealing with our hurt so that we're saying, God, we, I want you to work in my life, in their life. I, I, wanna, I, I don't want to stand in the way of, of your ways. I want to know your heart and your love, but I'm hurting. Instead of hiding away our hurt, we need to acknowledge it. Instead of pressing it down and covering it over, digging it deep, deep away, we need to acknowledge our hurt. We need to bring it out into the open. Instead of allowing our hurt to consume us, we need to surrender our hurt. Instead of allowing our hurt to drive us towards vengeance and retaliation, forgiveness drives us back to God's love and redemption. Here are some examples of, of the, the wrong motivation for love. Out of obligation, we approach forgiveness as a task that needs to be accomplished. But Jesus points us to forgiveness as a heart attitude to be nurtured. In Matthew 18, 21 to 35, we read this. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And what, what Peter's asking is, what is my obligation? How long do I have to put up with this? When can I hit him back? 
Now, when am I justified in retaliation? Is it after seven times? Is, is seven times enough and then I can whop him one? Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant, that same servant, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported this to their master, who, all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the de- that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We we like to keep track and and keep a record and and keep a measure. But, But Jesus is saying forgiveness is not about that. Forgiveness is about transforming your heart surrendering your hurt acknowledging your hurt surrendering your hurt and desiring God's justice to be done the writer of Hebrews in the same way encourages his readers to to pursue the cultivation of God's ways within their hearts in Hebrews 12 uh, from 7 we read it is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For, for the moment, all disciples seem painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields, uh, all the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, the the heart that the the writer of Hebrews is talking about is that we, we need to make through discipline, disciplining our hearts, correcting ourselves, allowing the Spirit to convict us of that which we are holding on to, the resentment and bitterness that we are holding on to. Because without the holiness of the Lord, without the, the, the grace and the gentleness and the justice of God, evident in our heart and in our life, in our words and in our actions, no one will see the Lord. Think about the gravity of that statement. Heart transformation. He says, God, deal with me first. Take the log out of my eye. And our human nature, our sinful nature says, God, Holy Spirit, I know you're, you're convicting me of this hurt, 
but they haven't said sorry. So I'm not going to let go of my hurt and my resentment until they come and say sorry. Or, or why should I be generous? Why should I change when they're not changing? You know, how often do we as Christians dig our heels in and say, God, I don't want to because look at the world. Look how wrong they are living. Jesus says, I don't, it's not about them. It's about you. I've invited you into this intimate, special, authentic relationship. I don't want you to mess up what we've got. I want you to understand that and know that so that as you live that, as you live with me in that intimacy, they get an opportunity to see the love and the grace and the mercy and the deep desire that I have to heal them and make them whole. Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's, it's putting what the writer of the Hebrews said the other way. The writer of the Hebrews said is, um, if you don't pursue God's heart, if you don't pursue forgiveness, if you don't pursue the things of God, then no one will see the Lord. Conversely, if you love one another as I have loved you, then all the world will see and know that you are my disciples, that you are different. Through pursuing God's heart, we pursue His holiness. In pursuing His holiness, we're seeking our own heart transformation. Through heart transformation, we are seeking His love. This is the foundation of the witness to the world. This is how the world knows that we are His disciples. And it is how that they will see and know His love for them. The Hebrews, uh, the writer to the Hebrews continues in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes troubles and by it many become defiled. You see that when we let unforgiveness go in our life, when we bury that hurt down, bitterness takes root and it affects our heart. It affects the way we live, the way we relate, the way we talk. It clogs up our witness. This is where forgiveness comes in. Through forgiveness, through acknowledging our hurt, surrendering our hurt to God so that His work might be done, we can ensure that bitterness doesn't grow. That we don't hold on to resentment towards others, that, that God's love is not hindered. You see, forgiveness does not require an apology. Forgiveness has got nothing to do with how the person who has hurt you responds. Forgiveness has got everything to do with our heart and our relationship with God and the work that God has for us as a part of his kingdom, as ambassadors of his good news. We're going to finish by looking at two, two more examples to see how bitterness and unforgiveness affects us in God's kingdom. And the second is how forgiveness is not simply forgetting. Let's turn, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We know the story of Jonah a prophet of God, a messenger of God to, to come to the people. And God says to Jonah one day, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. 
It was founded by a guy called Nimrod. We read about Nimrod in Genesis and it's in, in uh, amidst of all of these genealogies and, and there's this little anecdote about Nimrod. And depending on the version that you're reading, uh, the English translation says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. You kind of think, well, hey, that sounds pretty good. Mighty hunter before the Lord. Yet he, he founded Assyria and Nineveh, the, these places that defied God in every single way. The people of Nineveh were so, were so depraved in everything they wanted to do. Jonah wanted to run the opposite way and in fact he did. Other translations put it this way, that, that Nimrod was a mighty warrior in the face of God. Nimrod was a man who lived to shirt front God, to defy God. And the result of that was the people of Nineveh. You know, often when we look at the Old Testament, we can have this picture that, that God is all about the people of Israel, that God loves Israel and hates the rest of the world, that, that, that God is for them and against the others. All he's about is, is judgment and smiting anyone who is not Israel. But that's not the case. You see, when we look at Genesis, when we see the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's the promise that, that, that through Abraham's descendants that all the world will be blessed. God's love is not just for the people of Israel. God, is, God loves all of mankind. And we see that here. Because God says to Jonah, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to tell them that the way that they live in their life is, is wrong. It's causing all sorts of brokenness and damage. And I, I want you to call them to repent and to follow me. Jonah, Jonah turns to God and he says, you got some rocks loose, God. <laughs> anyway, through, through Jonah, we, we see that eventually, after much arguing with God, Jonah relents and reluctantly goes to Nineveh. He delivers God's message to the Ninevites and they respond. They're broken in their heart. They repent of their wickedness and they turn to follow God. We pick up in, in Jonah 4. <clears throat> Listen to Jonah's heart. Ask yourself, what, what type of heart do we see? What do we see growing in Jonah's heart? In this moment that he has just seen God administer his grace and his mercy and his justice upon the people of Nineveh. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Wow. Wow. I read that and my heart breaks. This is one of God's children. This is a son of God. And he's saying, God, I can't bear the fact that you are being merciful to these abhorrent people. I can't bear the fact that you are, are loving them and forgiving them and I'd rather you take my life. Wow. Lord, may that never be us. May, may we never have such a resentment and hatred and anger in our hearts that we despise God's grace upon anyone. God replied to jo Jonah and said, Do you do well to be angry? How, how does this anger serve you, Jonah? How does this anger help you? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made the booth for himself there. He sat under it 
in the shade, waiting till he should see what would become of the city. You know, Jonah is still saying in his heart, God, you better smite that city. You better rain down hell from heaven, fire from heaven, burn it up. Do you see that? Sometimes in how we speak of the world, speak of people, this expectation that that God would, would smite them and judge them, this bitterness and anger and resentment, this self-righteousness that we should be holier than them, based on what? Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Here's Jonah having this massive tantrum. Talk about terrible twos tantrum. God doesn't yell at him. God doesn't speak in the thunder and lightning and say, Jonah, wake up to yourself. He makes a plant grow over to give Jonah shade. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So it withered. The discipline of God. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And again, he asked that he might die again and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Do we, like Jonah, allow our hurt, our bitterness and our anger to prevent us from genuinely desiring to see God's love and grace in action? Do we resent God working in people that that we disagree with? People whose opinions are different to ours? Does our hurt and our bitterness and our resentment prevent us from building relationships with people and allowing them to see God's grace and mercy and love in our lives? Do we shield them from the good news of Jesus? Do we need to confess that perhaps our hearts have become hardened in various ways? And our bitterness has shaped how we love and it has separated us from God's heart. You know, sometimes hurt is deep. Words are, are not enough. We want to know that, that there will be some recompense. I want to tell you this morning that forgiveness is about our heart. And our relationship with God. Forgiveness does not wipe away the consequences. In 2 Samuel 12, we read of this magnificent encounter. I would love to be a fly on the wall uh, in this moment. This is uh, following David's infidelity with Bathsheba. She had fallen pregnant by his adulterous actions, their adulterous actions. And he'd also orchestrated the death of her husband. And he was not remorseful. He was unrepentant. We pick up in 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord said, sent Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet. He came to him and said to him, there were two men 
in a certain city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the short sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it in secret and I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Nathan went to his house. Our sinfulness brings brokenness. Our sinfulness leaves behind us a wake of hurt and scars. Whether that be the hurt that you've experienced, the person who has done wrong won't be spared consequences. For their actions. Often repentance leads to different consequences as we see in in David's case but he was not spared all of the consequences. The solace that we have in forgiveness and the reason why part of forgiveness is surrendering our hurt. Saying God I desire your justice to be done in full. What we're saying there is saying that, God, if, if in your justice, grace is to be administered, then I will champion that. But if those who have hurt me will not repent, will not relent, will not turn to you, then I surrender my hurt in every way that you may deal with them. We trust in God's justice in the first instance to seek and pursue redemption and reconciliation and restoration. We trust that if that is not possible, that God will administer the the consequences and that need not be on us. I want to finish with just... um, Revisiting the end of that Hebrews passage and then reflecting on a psalm. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, the gentleness, the grace, the mercy of God without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that it may become defiled. 
Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want, suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongues from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace in your heart and pursue it. This morning as we we take this word, I encourage you to to pray like David did. Search me, O God. See if there is any offensive way. Lord, reveal to me my hurt, my bitterness, my anger, my resentment. Lead me in your ways that I may seek peace and pursue it. That I may seek your justice that your love may be seen by all people. Lord, may we have heart for the people of Bowen, the people of Australia, the people of our world, like you do for the people of Nineveh. Lord, lead us in your ways. Reveal to us the hurt that we've been hiding the hurt that we've been burying deep for so long. Lord, help us to acknowledge it. Help us to surrender it. Help us to love and pursue justice your way. Amen.